Today's message uh, is our last message in Family Month. We've been doing this in January. Uh, messages related to family and issues related to family. I want to tell you next Sunday is going to be also a special message. We are going to bridge two dates on the calendar. We just came out of last Sunday, Right to Life Sunday, and this coming month is Black History Month. And so I want to speak next week on race and right to life and what it means to have value in the image of God and how it relates to in the womb and, uh, and everywhere else. So hope you'll come back for that. It'll be very, I think, culturally relevant, and uh, we'll see what God's Word has to say about it. Well, today is our last message in Family Month, and we're talking today on Christian parenting. If you're a parent today, I heard one time somebody said this to me, I couldn't agree more as a parent myself now, parenting the hardest job you'll ever love. Ah, what a great description that is. And today's message, by the way, is not just parents, but also grandparents, and in some ways an aunt and uncle um, within the family unit. What do parents want more than anything else? Christian parents want more than anything else. We want our children to be under the grace of God forever. We want our children to have a saving relationship with Jesus and to experience eternal life. I've entitled this message, Parenting for the Next Trillion Years. And I like that title, read it somewhere, because it gives a perspective on really where our eyes should be as parents in the life of our children and what really matters. And I want to make something clear today as well as we talk. Nobody saves their kids. Jesus is the Savior, parents are not. None of us can you know, are eloquent enough, perfect enough, whatever enough, in order to guarantee and ensure that our children are going to receive Christ as their Savior. And if you're here today and your child is the prodigal, if your child has rejected uh, your faith, we want you to know our hearts go out to you and do so in the context of an understanding that faith is a personal matter between uh, the creature and the creator. And parents can't make that happen. But that said, parents are an incredibly influential, uh, have an incredibly influential role in the lives of their children in making the gospel attractive. The Christian home, I believe, is the most fruitful and effective mission field in all of the world. And to prove that a moment, if you are here today and you would say, just in your own story and testimony, that you became a Christian out of a Christian home environment, would you stand for me right now? Okay? If you became a Christian out of a Christian home environment. Okay, now look around here. Have I proved my point? Amen. I think so. Thank you. You may be seated. And don't we want your children to stand someday in a service where they say, I was saved out of a Christian home environment. In other words, for them to come to know Christ as their Savior. There's no mission field in the world with this rate of evangelism. And since that's the case, I want to talk with us about how we can make the most of being Christian parents in the spiritual lives and eternity of our children. So here's the goal, to get your kid ready for the next trillion years. Parent, I wonder if you could embrace that in your heart, that my goal is to prepare my child for the next trillion years plus. If you're a parent, you have around 6,000 days before your child turns 18, where you have a direct influence 
on their life, on their perspective, on their priorities, and on their values. You have 6,000 days to prepare them for the trillion years. What are you going to do with those 6,000 days to get them ready? And today what I want to do is I want to talk with you about, um, from an experience that Abraham and Isaac had that gets at the point of influencing our children for God. Now, Abraham had a problem. If you know, here's the backstory. Abraham had a problem. I'm in Genesis 22 today, by the way. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, Abraham had a problem. God had promised him that he would have descendants as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. But Sarah wasn't having a child. And they were getting older, like really old, like 40. I'm kidding. They were getting older. And 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 No son by Sarah. And Abraham clinging to the promise of God, hoping that yet God will almost do the miracle in having his wife 10 years younger than him give birth to a child. And indeed, this is what God did. Abraham was around 100. Sarah was around 90. And sure enough, she gets pregnant. Miracle of miracles. They named their new son Isaac. And today I want to pick up the story around 13 years Later, after his birth, something happens that Isaac would never forget. And we pick up the story now in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Alexander had the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Abraham, this was his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Imagine the look on Abraham's face when God communicates to him, I want you to take Isaac and go sacrifice him on a mountain. I mean, first of all, we're talking about the God of love here. We're talking about, like, God is not for child sacrifice, right? I mean, if if there was ever sort of a a strong impression... (laughs) that uh, God had spoken to you that you could rationalize your way out of, I think it would be this one, right? Oh, no, he couldn't want me to do something like that. And yet it was communicated clearly, and Abraham had to choose whether or not he was going to obey. Now, side note, God is not for child sacrifice. In fact, he is adamantly against it and used the Israelites to judge the nations that were practicing child sacrifice. Actually relates to our message next week a little bit. so this is not a child sacrifice thing. This, and the author makes it clear at the beginning of the chapter that this was a test. This was not a sacrifice. This was a test. A test of Abraham's heart. Who or what has first place in Abraham's heart? But what a tough test this was. You ever notice when God tests us and our priorities. He doesn't mess around with like item seven or nine on the priority list. He always goes to the top of the list, doesn't he? Number one, number two. And in Abraham's priority list, near the top for sure, was the long-awaited Isaac, the son that he loves. So he's told that he's, go to, he's to go to Mount Moriah, which, uh, as I understand it, was like for, maybe around 45 miles away. This would be like us walking to southwest Michigan. Wouldn't that be great to do today? Anyway, uh, so it's like a three-day walk, and side note, Moriah is the mountain on which Jerusalem and indeed 
the temple, the temple mound would someday be and near where Jesus would uh, be crucified. And so there's all kinds of messianic overtones here, which are not the focus of this message, but I just note that to you. So it's a three-day walk. We pick it up in verse 4. On the third day, so Abraham begins the walk, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, sit here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Imagine Abraham's dread on this trip. Every step he knows is closer to the place and the time that he was going to have to do the one thing he did not want to do. I mean, if you're you're a parent here and your child has ever had a serious medical condition, you know the feeling as that date approaches where that procedure is about to happen, the sense of dread of what is going to take place. Abraham had this on steroids. He was going to be called by God to sacrifice his own son. And yet he gets on with it. The text says that he gets up early in the morning and immediately begins to obey. And they walk and he sees the mountain and he tells he tells the uh, servants that were with him, he says, okay, you guys stay here uh, with the animals, and Isaac and I are going up the mountain, and notice that he says, and then we are coming back down, an indication already of Abraham's confidence that whatever happens here, Isaac is still going to be alive with me. Now, Hebrews gives us a glimpse into the mind of Abraham. Think of this, the clinging to the promise of God, because with every step, Abraham is thinking to himself, God promised that all my descendants are going to come through Isaac. God promised that all my descendants are going to come through Isaac. If I sacrifice him, how can that be possible? And Hebrews tells us that Abraham was thinking to himself, God will raise him back from the dead. Here's the text, verse 19, chapter 11. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. What is faith? Faith is trusting the promises of God in the difficulties of life. And you see Abraham giving an example of what that means, to cling to the fact that God's going to do what he said, even if I don't see how he possibly can do it. We get to verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went on together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them, together. Little glimpse here into the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is just a boy, but this was not the first time that he and his dad had gone to worship God. We know that because he looks at what his dad's carrying and what the wood he has on his back, and he thinks to himself, okay, I see the knife, I see the fire, I see the wood, but dad, where's the lamb? Spiritual activities together was apparently a common thing for Abraham and Isaac. It reminds me a little bit of a time I went to a new family in the church. I went over to their house to have dinner with them. We sit around the table. The dad is there. Next to him is his son, and And the dad says, all right, uh, everybody, let's bow our heads to pray before we eat. And the son says, but dad, we don't normally pray before we eat. (laughs) Shh, you know, the pastor's over. (laughs) Apparently for Abraham and Isaac, it was a common thing for them to worship God together. 
One thing to note here as this story unfolds, actually, uh, look, look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. Isaac here is called a boy. So, you know, we're kind of in that tweener sort of age category. Uh, but Abraham is 100 plus, And Abraham is tying up Isaac. My money is on Isaac uh, being able to get out of that situation. You know, pick some uh, seventh grade football player at middle school at Crown Point High School and a hundred plus man, my money's on the, is on the, is on the 13 year old, right? And yet Isaac submits to his father and his father explains and he, he doesn't fight him. He doesn't run away from him. He submits to him and onto the altar they go. Then, here's the key moment, then Abraham, verse 10, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. No doubt as he does this, tears streaming down his face, everything in him wants to delay, not do it, and yet he does. Would he obey? Look at uh, what happens. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I would interpret this where he was like, you know, about to do it. And uh, what was that, God? Did you want to just, I can stop right now? Is there something you didn't want me to do there? Just real quick stop on that one. Indeed, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham passed the test. And we see here that God was not watching the knife. God was watching Abraham's heart. And in that heart, Abraham, God perceived an intention to obey him and to even sacrifice his beloved son. He passed the test. And God stopped him from doing that. The story goes on that indeed there was a ram caught in the thicket behind them. They get the ram. They sacrifice the ram. And they came down the mountain together. What a powerful story. And I'm going to just say that there's a lot in this we could talk about. But in terms of family month and in terms of Christian parenting, I want to ask one very important question from the story here. Not what did God learn or what Abraham learned that day on Mount Moriah. What did Isaac learn? What did Isaac learn as he laid on that altar and he saw that knife? And he looked into the tears streaming down his dad's face. What did Isaac learn that day? What did he learn on a three-day journey? What did he learn in the explanation of the altar? What did he learn in the tears in his dad's eyes? Isaac learned that the number one priority in his dad's life was God. This is Isaac. His whole life he was told by his mom and his dad, God promised that you were going to come to that you were going to be born to us. We didn't think it was ever going to happen. Mom and dad got really really old, but God blessed us with you. I mean, if there was ever a spoiled only child, it was Isaac. The child of their elderly age, the child of promise. But on that mountain, as Isaac looked into his dad's eyes, and he looked at that blade. You know what Isaac learned that day? Isaac learned that he was not number one in his dad's heart. 
Isaac learned that he was not the center of his dad's universe. Isaac learned that God Almighty was the number one priority in his dad's life. And that formed a lasting impression in Isaac's life. We know that Abraham passed the faith on to Isaac because we go to Hebrews 11, the famous hall of faith listing the great heroes of the faith. Abraham is there. Isaac is there. Isaac embraced faith in Yahweh. And how was he influenced towards that? How did that happen? And parents, what I want to say to you today is this, that of all the tools and influences that you have at your disposal, the most powerful and lasting influence for the gospel that you can have in your child's life is for them to see that God is your greatest treasure. And we could give discipline direction and how to, you know, potty train and how to, you know, get to the school and whatever, educate. Great. All of it's good. But I'm talking to you about preparing your child for the trillion years. Your child is going to spend eternity somewhere. And the Bible says there are only two places that all of humanity goes. That trillion years plus, that child that you love and the children that I love, my own two daughters, they're going to spend eternity somewhere. And we don't save our children. But we can powerfully influence them by making the gospel attractive. And what could a parent want more than that? I blew out birthday candles yesterday. Guess what the wish of my heart was? The obvious and terrifying problem, as I (laughs) describe this, is that you can't fake your faith to the kids. You can fake us out. And maybe one or two of you do. Uh, so, good morning, Pastor Steve. It's just so delightful to be here. Nodding your head during the sermon, very affirming. Oh, yes. You can fake people out. And no doubt we got some of that going on here today. But you can't fake your kids out. Because your kids are seeing you, they're staring at you and your life 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They see you when you're ups, they see you when you're downs, they see you when you're healthy, they see you when you're sick, they see you when things are good, they see you when things are bad. They know the real God of our hearts. They know what we really care about. And I want to say that we're not talking here today about spiritual perfection. I'm not here to lay a big guilt trip upon every parent here where we walk out and go, i got to be perfect so my kids go to heaven. No. We're not talking like that. And again, if your kid is the prodigal kid, we emphasize the fact that's a personal relationship or not with Jesus. Okay? We can't save our kids. But boy, should we do everything we can to influence them, to receive Christ as their Savior to be under the grace of God forever, and to spend trillions and trillions and trillions of years with God and Jesus and us. The cry of our hearts is that. So we're not talking about spiritual perfection. We're just talking about the reality of it. Like, it's real. It's not perfect. It's It's just real. And that, by the way, is most evident in our failures. Okay? You don't need to go out there and be, you know, pick your spiritual hero. 
It's mostly in our failures that our kids go, wow, it must be real, because look at that. I, I've told you the story. To this day, a firm memory in my mind from my own childhood is the day that my mom, I, I'm, I'm the oldest of four, my mom gathered us together on the steps in our house. I can still see it. She sat at the top of the steps. We kids were, you know, down the steps, and she said, kids, mommy wants to confess to you that my attitude yesterday was wrong and bad and I regret it. Will you kids forgive mama? And of course, we kids were like, yes, mommy, we forgive you, you know? <laughs> kids are so great with forgiving. Would that we all were as good at forgiving as kids are, right? Oh, but here I am now, 40 years later. I'm not telling you about how I saw her read her Bible, but I'm telling you about how she confessed sin to us. It's not perfection. I mean, this is an encouragement you don't have to be perfect. None of us are perfect. None of us are even close to perfect. But real, real in the ups, real in the downs, living out that faith, not giving the idea that you've got to perform somehow before God, just like I'm trying to perform in front of you. No, be real. And it'll be powerful in their life. Paul Tripp has an excellent book on parenting called Age of Opportunity. And, and here's the danger, okay? Here's the danger. I'm talking about uh, a principle of impression that parents have on their kids. The same principle, though, applies to any God you serve. So if the God of heaven is not your number one priority, all of us have a God of some kind. And whatever that God is, it is being impressed upon our children as being the really important thing to live for in life. And he lists, uh, Trip lists, some other gods, counterfeit parental gods. The idol of comfort, which says, my needs come first. The idol of respect, you will respect me. The idol of appreciation, I serve, you need to appreciate me. The idol of success, you're here to make me look good. Children, where they're just pawns for us, expressing our own ego. Idol of control, you will do what I say. These idols and many others are also gods. They're, they're being impressed upon our children as being really important things to live for. In fact, our children tend to live out and, and they reflect our weaknesses before us. This is one reason they drive us crazy is the very thing that we want the most so that we don't get. So the respect-free parent never earns her children's respect. The appreciation-freak parent never gets enough kudos, and so forth. Okay, so here's the good news. Okay, I want to encourage you with this, that while you can't save your child, every Christian parent is in a powerful place of influence towards the gospel in their lives. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, not a perfect home. I already... I've already told a story of uh, failure and confession, but there was so many things in my home growing up that I am so profoundly thankful for. I'll give you one example. I don't remember a single night growing up where if I was to look in my parents' bedroom at bedtime, that I would not see my dad on his knees praying at the bedside. What kind of impression does that make on a 10-year-old son? Hey, Mom and Dad, oh, Dad's praying. Okay, I've got to go. There he is praying. There he is praying. 
There he is praying. What impression does that make on a son? I think God's important to my dad. I see that in the ethic of his life. Dads don't do that unless they are taking their faith seriously. Now parents, I'm not telling you to live out your faith in front of your kids so that your kids, primarily, so your kids go to heaven. We should do this for Jesus' sake, not for kids' sake. Okay? That would be making an idol of our kids' eternity, and that's sort of corrupting the very thing I'm trying to encourage here. So we follow Jesus because he is the most glorious, wonderful person that we could ever know, and I am doing this because I love him, first and foremost. But as a secondary byproduct of that, in the experience of parenting, that life lived out before children draws their hearts towards that priority in their own life. I remember it's been 25 years ago, probably, I was in my car driving down the road, and I heard Pastor Bob Russell give a message that is the seeds of this very message. I still remember the message uh, and the example from Abraham and Isaac. And in that message, he talked about a couple of practical categories and ways that parents can live out that priority before their kids, and I'm just going to share them with you. They're so good. Number one. Attitude towards church. Attitude towards church. You know, for better or for worse, in a child's mind, church is associated with God. Like there's something spiritual here. There's something here different than Chuck E. Cheese. When I'm at church, this is like a God spiritual thing. They associate those two. And so whatever a parent's attitude is towards church, in the heart of the child, they are seeing that as a a modeled example of an attitude, the proper attitude towards God. So I would just encourage you parents, make church a priority. Like I grew up again in a house where, I mean, we never missed church. It didn't matter how cold it was outside. Amen. We were there. That was just the, you know... And, and I didn't have the option not to go. Like, I hear parents who sometimes are like to their, you know, 12-year-old, do you want to go to church or do you not want to go to church? Really? Like, do you do that with school? Do you want to go to school today or do you not want to go to school today? What would you, do you want to watch Disney movies at home or do you want to go? To... And you laugh at that. You say, oh, I would never do that. Why? Because education is so important. A lot of GED people are going to be in eternity in heaven someday. Don't make it an option. I would no more have asked if I could not go to church growing up than asked to drive to church when I was seven or something. It was just like a ridiculous, didn't even cross my mind. I'm going to drive today. In general, I think, though, you want to look for opportunities to show them that spiritual things are more important than other things. I'll give you another example from my my life growing up. My dad uh, was an athlete. He was a very good athlete. He could still dunk in his 40s. Uh, Brag on my dad for a second. Uh, Played basketball. We we played all kinds of sports growing up. Big sports home. But basketball was my dad's main thing. I'm the oldest of four. He loved to see me play basketball. And he encouraged it. He nourished it. 
I mean, growing up, if there was a camp to go to, I went to it. If, you know, Knights of Columbus free throw shooting contest, I was a part of it. If the rec center was having some kind of a basketball thing, I went and I did it. And my dad was there. I remember in high school, there was one dad that would come to many of the practices and watch, and it was my dad. And it used to embarrass me. But 35 years later, I'm still talking about it. Why? Because I know that it meant that he cared for me. Never missed a game, that sort of thing. So it was a priority. It was, it was important. Hours shooting baskets in the, in the garage hoop. Well, my sophomore year in high school, I went to a very large public high school, and oftentimes the practices on Wednesday night would go into the evening past 6.30. Problem, student ministry youth group started at 6.30 at the church that we attended. So here now is a little Mount Moriah moment for my dad. Really wanted me to succeed in, in sports and in basketball. Youth group. What's he going to do? My dad took a deep breath, went to the coach and said, my son is not available on Wednesday nights after 6.30. This coach, who was no Christian and really not a, not, a, not a good guy in that way, did not like that. And so he said, fine. Did it affect my playing time? It sure did. Did it affect my statistics my sophomore year in basketball? It sure did. But today, let me ask you, which is the more important thing? My stats, my sophomore year basketball, or the lasting impression it made on me about what my dad really cared about? And parents, you're going to have Mount Moriah moments in the story of your parenting where you're going to have to choose between things that maybe are temporarily important but eternally unimportant. Which will you choose? And what I'm encouraging you as parents is to have the long game in view. Don't think about the fleeting and the temporary. Think about the eternal. And what can we do to foster in the hearts of our children a sense of the priority of the things of God and the kingdom of God and the work of God and the gospel of Jesus and your attitude towards the church, the place you put it in your own schedule, your own serving in the church and things like this speak volumes. If you're negative every Sunday on the way home from church, oh, the preacher, blah, 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 you know. That church is so blah, 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 blah. Your children are in the backseat listening, and you are forming in them a perspective, not just on that local church, but on Jesus. And if your child turns 18, and they apparently have a negative view towards the gospel, you think, where did this come from? You have formed it bit by bit, week after week, for most of their life. Be very careful. You have 6,000 days. 6,000 days to impact them for Christ. What will you do with it? Secondly is atmosphere in the home. Okay, atmosphere in the home. I don't have time today, but we could turn to Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11. God was very concerned with and the Israelites were very concerned with, and this is true for centuries, really to this day, in Judaism, a high emphasis on spiritual education. And God encourages the Christian parent, the parents to, it's basically the drip approach, where you just drip into them over the course of the, of the days and the weeks as opportunities form uh, that come, spiritual thoughts and spiritual conversations. And, and you're not obnoxious about it. Daddy, can we, you know... Can we go uh, play catch? No, we're memorizing verses. You know, it's not like you're obnoxious about it, but in the normal course of living life, you 
Talk about spiritual things. Make sure your kids know how you came to faith in Christ. If I ask your children today, do you know how daddy came to faith in Christ? Do you know how mommy came to faith in Christ? They should know that. Make those stories legendary to them. Tell it to them as you walk, as you drive, as you eat. Drip it in in the normal course of life. I would encourage all of our families to have regular spiritual times together. We call this family devotions. And this is just an intentional time where for some minutes of the day, and I'm not going to tell you how many days a week to do it because the legalists now begin checking off their boxes, but you've got to think about what would be, you know, what's best for the trillion years. Regularly have times together where you read the Bible and pray. Novel thought for Christians to read the Bible and pray. Do it with your kids. Now, if they're younger, like my children are, I'm not like exegeting Leviticus with them. Uh, we have wonderful resources that, like this, I took these out of our house today for this message, in fact. You know, the, the Big Picture Story Bible is a, is, this is probably our favorite, uh, our favorite one. And uh, we use this first catechism, little booklet, I think we sell these in our bookstore. Whatever it is for you, just have some things that you're working through and talking about. Use resources to spur conversation. You want to create an atmosphere where spiritual conversation is normal. One of the best ways to do that is just to pray together. It should be natural in your home where you say, let's pray about that. And it can be any little, my, my daughters, I have a boo-boo right here. And, you know, they're like, can you pray for me? I'm like, okay, dear God, please help Madeline's boo-boo get better. To the glory of Jesus, amen. And it sounds silly, but I'm trying to create a sense where you can go to God with prayer requests, big or small. Do that. Now, some of you right now are thinking to yourself, oh, man, this church... We are going so overboard with the Jesus thing. And I go to your house, and here's a whole room dedicated to the Cubs or IU basketball or the Bears. I go to your basement, you got signed memorabilia everywhere, you know. I say, well, why, why do you have all of this stuff? Well, this is very important. Really? Is it important in a trillion years? Because I'm going to guess where your child spends eternity is super important in a trillion years. And all of this stuff burns up. Doesn't matter. That's the long game, parents. That's the long game. And you have a thousand decisions to make regarding your child and, you know, big and small things. Do your best. Nobody does this perfectly. Pray, ask God for wisdom. God, I want to use the 6,000 days to make the most that I can for the trillion years. Will you please help me make this decision right? And Jennifer and I haven't made all the decisions right, for sure, uh, and neither have you. But by God's grace, to ask for his help and say, please help us. We want to point our children to Christ. Thirdly, is adherence to God's command. Okay, this is the daily ethic of life. The way that you live your life, your kids are watching. And again, nobody does this perfectly. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the direction of your life. The overall direction. Is it for the things of God? Is there a care for the kingdom of God? You know, is, it, is there a, a sense of, 
a, a culture in the, in the home where Jesus is honored and God's work is honored and the church is cared for and we're praying for the missionaries over here and we're excited about, you know, things that are happening in ministry. That's what we're talking about. And then the living out in some, you know, fashion that the direction of my life is where I care about what God thinks more than what my neighbor thinks or what my, my mom thinks or whatever. I care about what God thinks. Your children someday are going to tell Mount Moriah stories. At least you want them to be able to. The first service today, one came to my mind, another one I remember. <laughs> so growing up, Hy-Vee was the local grocery store. And Hy-Vee was running a, a, a special thing where you got, when you bought groceries there, you got a little tear-off sticker for Monday Night Football. And you, you, you peeled off the, and it gave a score. And if the score of the Monday night game was the score on your ticket, you would win money. Well, my mom went shopping one Monday, and she had this card, and uh, the next morning I got up, and I can't remember how I found out the score. This is before the internet. You had to catch the sports uh, show to know what the score of the game was. But it turns out that the score of the game matched the card that we got from the grocery store, and we won like 100 or $150. Now, this is back when that was like a million dollars. That's how long ago it was. But when you're like 12, it seems like, it's like, we're rich, you know, this is amazing. And I was, you know, I, I was the one who, you know, figured it out and pointed it out. And so I figured I had some take in it, you know, probably. <laughs> it seemed logical to me that I would. So anyway, we were rich. And <laughs> we were talking about it. And my dad brought up the fact that our church was raising money for a new parking lot and that he thought it would be good for us to go ahead and give that money to the church for the you know to buy one spot in the new church parking lot <laughs> I'm still upset about it like <laughs> But 40 years later, I'm still talking about it. What stories are your children going to have growing up in your home? What Mount Moriah-type opportunities do you have to show to your kids that your number one priority is God? And with prayers along with that, that God would use that to impress upon their hearts their own need for a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior for all who will trust and believe in him. What more could a parent want today or for the next trillion years?